Hello and welcome to Thank You Come Again. This is an e-commerce podcast sponsored by Wonderment, where we dive into the actual strategies that leading D2C brands are using to not only make their customers come back and buy again, but have the best possible customer experiences. I'm Blake and Burl. I started my career as a retention marketer, and now I'm focused on being a shepherd of knowledge for you and others on all things retention marketing. You won't find any top 10 guru guides here. Instead, I want you to walk away from each episode with battle-tested and actionable insights that's going to help you to move a needle forward and driving repeat business. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hello, friends, and welcome back to this week's episode of Thank You, Come Again. Today, I am joined by Tyler Soli Sullivan, founder of SoliTyler.com, Ecom Growers, and the recently acquired D2C brand, BombTech Golf. Today, we're going to be digging deeper into the BombTech story, how he approached customer retention, and strategies for getting folks to come back and buy again with larger ticket items. But first, Soli, thanks for joining the show, man. How are you? I made it, finally. No, th- thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I love the name of the show. You killed that intro. That's probably a top 10 uh intro so congrats on that dude appreciate it man i um uh, do my best for for uh for the audience but I, I heard you actually mention i think it was a uvm podcast that they had the best intro so maybe i got some room to improve there on, uh, that on was pretty the intro close better. that was pretty close to I, I a lot of times on these pods there's multiple takes so one take is you're already in the top five percent right there love it i'm gonna put that on, on the uh website there top five yes. percent there you go but uh so anyways, man, I've been following you for a while now. It's great to finally get to chat. Um, huge fan of BombTech, your story. I think it's, you know, one of immense entrepreneurial spirit, hustle, and really creating an awesome product and category, I think, there. And would love, I'm sure you've shared this a ton of times, but can you just share a little bit of, like, the BombTech origin story for our audience? Yeah, so this is dating me way back. 2012 is when I first had the idea. And, you know, I kind of came into it with no expectations of, making or selling a single product. Um, I was in sales doing, you know, medical device, pharmaceutical sales, and like this technical engineering sales, you know, just did everything sales wise. It was frankly pretty bored um, and just was not a good employee. So I started, you know, competing in this hobby of mine, home run derby of golf, they call world long drive. And I was like the worst competitor ever, but uh, I became obsessed with golf again after, you know, falling out of love with it. And, and all I did was try to hit the ball as hard as I could. My longest to date was 360. Uh, and the guys were hitting like 440. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was cool, but it was, it was just a fun thing to do. And during that obsession, um, you know, I, I started breaking golf clubs that I had a local club builder, uh, assembling for me. And I just started assembling my own cause I had no money and I couldn't afford to pay him to make clubs that broke because I wanted to compete. And then a buddy of mine's like, Hey, can I buy one of those? I was like, okay, cool. And then I had this weird idea to make a website and this is 2012. So whipping up a website was not as easy as it is now. And I made the world's worst website. Like literally it was like a cartoon guy flexing, uh, for sale signs flashing. And we, I sold nothing for six months. And then I was on my boat, which was not a yacht on Lake Champlain in Vermont. And I got a ding on my phone and it was a sale. And I was like, it, it blew my mind. That was my first epiphany. Like, oh my God, I'm not trading time or, you know, my time for, for money, but I'm, and I'm on a boat and I made a sale. Like, and I think I lost my that sale because I think it was like Ireland. Oh, and man. I didn't even, <laughs> didn't even have shipping calculated for that. Sure. But it was, that was like an aha moment. Like, oh my God, that's, I sold something on the internet. This is amazing. So I just started doing more of that. And then I was having beers with a frat brother of mine, former frat bro. And uh, I was like, dude, I want to design my own golf club. And he's like, you're not that smart. And I'm like, yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, it took me five years to graduate um, college at UVM. But I call, he's like, why don't you call our local college where we went to school and see if they'll help you design a product. I'm like, all right, why not? So I called them up and they said, sure, you can apply. There's a capstone project every year. I applied, I got in, and I designed a golf driver for a year with four students at UVM. And uh, I cashed in my 401k and, and had them made. I had like 50 units made, the mold. Um, and during that time, accidentally or 
coincidentally, however you want to put it, I was just documenting what I was doing on Facebook, like just, mm -hmm. hey guys, this is what I'm doing. You know, it's coming soon. What kind of, you know, what colors do you like? What lofts do you play? Just asking questions, you know, which becomes yeah. a, th uh, a thesis of our success is asking and building an audience and community. And, you know, so the product was great. I tested it. Actually, the guy next to me at the driving range was the first person to ever hit it. And yeah, he's like, what is this? <laughs> I told him it's this club I designed. He hit it. He's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And he bought it. I was like, oh my God, this is so, so all these things just, I mean, that's like we're already a year and a half into the store and we finally sold our first club and have a, no 401k. Um, but then we, I used, you know, Facebook and was able to pre-order. And I think we sold like $10,000 in our first day, which is another moment of traction. And, and really the next year was so tough because it was slow. This is pre like ads. I wasn't using Facebook ads, all organic. And then it was the week before Thanksgiving and I found out my wife was pregnant and I was fired from my day job. And it was like, it was like pretty, pretty much like this week. Um, we probably need to send an email out uh, about that. Thank you for reminding me. Now I'm telling the Great story. Reminder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was fired and I was devastated, dude. I was like, always thought I'd have that job. It was a more secure job. I took a safer job than the pharma job. And I was just blindsided because sales were up like 200% there. I was killing it. And bomb tech was definitely not at a full-time income. It was doing like 10, 15 K a month, which sounds cool. But when you're manufacturing your own product, I mean, my cash outlay was way negative because you got to manufacture your own product. And my wife was so supportive. And like, when I came home early from work, she's like, okay, cool. You got fired. Are you going to make bomb tech full-time or what? And that year was probably the hardest year of my life because I had a newborn on the way and was assembling clubs myself in the basement. And, you know, didn't have a lot of money coming in, you know, so it, it was crazy. And that it made me work 20 hours a day, every, like literally every waking second I was working, trying to figure it out. And then Facebook and Facebook ads, we really just took off. You know, we like were able to dial in Facebook, just video content, getting crazy reach on stuff. Like we had 300,000, 300,000 views and like 10,000 comments on one video. And it was like boosted for like 300 bucks or something. And I, I literally on my Blackberry commented to every comment until my thumbs were like bleeding. The original and, conversational marketing right there. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And it was just one of those things where I was like, I see engagement. I don't know exactly what it's going to do, but like, let's engage. So there's all these moments of like traction, you know, that happen. And then, you know, I was able to scale it up with uh, Facebook ads. Like when those came out, you know, we went from like 450K a year like all organic pretty much. And that next year I did it myself and I was awful at it. I did like 1.4 million. And I was just like, when is it going to stop? When are the sales going to stop? And then it went from one, four to four, four to six, four, you know, they, and I think we topped out at just shy. I don't think I could say the number uh, like 9.9 .9 million. Um, yeah. And so I was able not to go, I don't know if you want to stop me, but then I had, my second kid. And I said, it's not fair to my wife and other kid to work so much. So I, I made a plan, uh, six weeks to take six weeks off. Mm -hmm. And during that process, you know, sales actually went up <laughs> and I said, wow, I'm really not that important anymore. And that was another epiphany because I was working so much grinding this for years. Business was doing great. Millions of dollars, you know, and then I was like, wow, I can actually take a step back and enjoy life a little bit. And I did that for like three, four years where I was just running it, you know, at a high level. I have my experts like siloed. You got my ad guy, email agency, CRO, fulfillment center, customer service. So it was just like I'm the coordinator of bullshit, I used to call it, mm -hmm. uh, at, at a high level. And it wasn't a lot of levers to pull because I had the right people in the right place. And that's that's half the battle is just finding the right experts once you have product market fit. Um, and all that. And then to close loop, this there's a million other things, ways I can go with the story. But this year after COVID, I, I, I set a number last year. I said, if we hit this number, I'm going to sell it. So I, I sold in February. Man. And that just, I really haven't told many people about it because it's my, it's really my first baby. Um, and I'm still running the company um, for that's part of the deal, which has been great. And uh, it changed my life.
And and I would have never thought e-commerce and selling golf clubs online would would have done that. But I'm so thankful I accidentally sold something online on a boat. Today's episode of the Tega Podcast is brought to you by Wonderment, the easiest way to proactively set expectations on shipping timeframes, automatically update customers with delays, and measure shipping expectation versus reality across the business. Wonderment is a retention Swiss Army knife used by hundreds of leading Shopify merchants, including The Ridge, Boxu, Igloo, Feastables, Jones Road Beauty, and more. Whether you're looking to improve your customer experience, retention marketing, or both, Wondermint will turn your post-purchase shipping experiences into a channel that helps to bring your customers back again and again. Tech of Podcast listeners can receive a free trial of Wondermint by visiting wondermint.com demo and let them know that Blake sent you. And now, back to the show. I mean, man, that's, a, that's an amazing story. I, I think, you know, just first of all, massive congratulations on the acquisition. You know, I think what a lot of folks don't realize is that, you know, there's a lot of work, like you mentioned, to get to that point. And as you mentioned, so many risks along the way, I think, you know, as like potential you know, aspiring founders or even early stage founders right now might be listening, thinking about this too. Like you talk about, you know, taking out your 401k, uh, the, the baby on the way being that sort of like immense, um, you know, sort of like motivator, I think in a lot of ways, you know, like to actually really just go all in on this. And I think that that definitely is something I'm hearing from you is like, you just have to go all in on this. You have to really be, you know, believing in the process, but also continuing to just kind of like, you know, like for what I'm hearing as well is, you know, like kind of like that product market fit takes a little bit of time to figure out, I think, in a category like this too. Um, and so, I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of great stuff, I think, just to kind of unpack even in like kind of, we can talk about, you know, as you kind of grew the business and the retention and all that different stuff as well. But um, what was it like to get acquired? I mean, was that something that, I mean, like you kind of knew starting the company that you wanted to, you know, sell one day? Was it just sort of like, you know, building a building? Um, just curious, like how that kind of process was for you. Yeah, I had no expectations when I started BombTech of it to even make a dollar or sell a club. So to, to think of it, to sell it was not even like, I think that was the beauty of what I did as I, I had no experience and was naive. And I just was doing what was fun and where there was traction, I was going versus I think if I had expectations and said, hey, if I don't make a million dollars or sell a million clubs or whatever in this amount of time, I think it would have turned into work, you know? So I think it, that was the beauty and it was like, this was my side hustle. I just loved it. I had no experience, no expectations. And it allowed me to work not feel like work and have fun. And, and it kind of just, that's why I grew versus like going in with a formalized business plan. Let's grow it in four years or seven years and sell it and, and sell it for this. Um, and it, it was really, for me, it was like, I've got two young kids, you know, and the timing just felt right to me. And even though it's my first baby, it just was like, I can either keep pressing the gas and spending capital to keep growing it or i can say okay this is this is the best that i can do with it the brand's really strong customer base is you know we've taken care of them and that's like something i can always hang my hat on we've always done well for our customers and the time just felt right i know that's not like a, a hard and fast hey we i do it i'm going to sell in this this year for this much and i was just trying not to get greedy either you know because sure. we had like five or six offers and you know, obviously I wanted a number that was so ridiculous because it was I'm so romantic about the business. But at end of the day, it was a number that would be life changing. And I was like, okay, this this feels right. I had worked so hard to set the business up in such a way it could be transferred easily. You know, so I was dialed in and and operated like that for years, for like two or three years, with the expectation that if I wanted to sell, I could. So I always try to run it. And there were moments in time where it would be unsellable. You know, 2016, 17, I was just too involved in the day-to-day. -day. The books weren't dialed in or tight enough on a, on a I couldn't quickly get a PL. You know, so dialing the bookkeeping, dialing in, you know, the accounting practices and just hiring better people than myself. That's my, you know, the core of this. <laughs> it's like I had a cool idea, cool brand, cool product, and hire better people than myself. You know, so it felt really weird though to sell it, to be honest. Um it was like unemotional, but also emotional because like when the wire hits the bank, it, it's just a number, you know, right. and it's just like if that number had five more zeros or 10 or a couple less zeros or whatever, does your life really change? 
yes, but it, I don't know. It's and everyone says this is an anticlimactic thing, and it, and it kind of was, you know. And it was, but now it it took me like three or four months to mentally unhinge a little because I was so stuck in ten years of doing the same the same thing the same way. So that to change my, you know, change my mindset and how it was connected to the brand was really difficult um, to let go a little bit, you know, because I'm no longer the owner, you know. Um, so, but all in all, I'm so happy I did it when I did, um, and I'm still working there, so I'm still doing what I did, uh, and I only work, you know, I don't work a lot, and that was part of the deal. Is like, hey, I'll continue on with you um, in the same role I was, you know. So I've got a call a couple times a month go over certain things and I coordinate the guys just like I used to, but that's it. You know, so it's nothing has changed. Um, and that was a, a really important thing. And I thought they would do a good job continuing the brand and the legacy. So I'm happy, man. Life is good. I love it, dude. That's I'm super, super happy to hear that story. I think it's definitely, uh, you know, I've been around a few econ businesses, you know, consulting that have, have gone through acquisitions or also ones that kind of held on a little too long, thinking that things were going to, you know, maybe grow a little bit more. And then the valuation ended up going significantly down too. So I know mm -hmm. it can definitely slide both ways, but, you know, obviously had a great result. And I, I want to dig a little bit deeper kind of now, like into some of the ways that you really approach growing the business. Um, you mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, having a community customer retention, all these different things. Um, and also, you know, BombTech exists and I, what I would think is a, a pretty saturated market or a lot of legacy brands competing in that space. Yet you clearly had something here that was differentiated. You mentioned um, sort of the engineering being kind of that kind of uh, differentiator for you. So how did you approach customer acquisition as you kind of went against some of these more, I guess, uh, larger competitors? Totally. Yeah. I mean, since I had no expectations, I, I really was just trying to stay in our lane and really listen to the customer. Like, oh, like just doing that alone is what made us different is like early on, I did every customer service phone call and email, you know, for, Oh man, this is like two, three years where I was doing every single thing in the business, which was not healthy. I don't recommend people do that. But I, I had an intimate knowledge of who the customer was and built relationships almost one by one and really just took care of them even when it hurt. Like, so if a, a shipment got lost in the mail, you know, even early days when I had no money, I would send them a new club. And that really hurt. And it was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. But I knew at the end of the day, if I was a customer, that's what I would want. You know, and I was a customer. So it was like it was easy, easy for me to just wow the customers in like almost an unscalable way. You know, write handwritten thank you notes, call customers, thanking them, doing all these things, which made us unique, you know, and kind of I think our methodology with email and communication is like the core piece of how we were different not necessarily the product itself it's like we're re we're, we're designed for regular golfers right so we don't we're not, we don't care about pros we don't care about retail so that's like how we're different uh, but really that's just that's part of it and then it's like with our emails we ask for real feedback and that's what we did early days on facebook now we've got a facebook group that's owners only and there's like you know it's not a ton i think 17 18 000 owners in that group and then our email list We'll ask them and it seems so simple, but it has a really big impact. So if we have a new product idea, like let's say I have a 64 degree wedge and a chipper, I may have, and, and this, this one small thing has so many benefits. So like I used to think I knew what everyone wanted for products, right? I'm the founder, I'm the owner, I'm a golfer. I know what people want and that's not true. So uh, my ego was uh, slapped a couple of times, but you know, when I uh, finally was like, all right, let me just ask the customers what they want. You know, I'm always wrong. So I thought everyone wants a 64 degree wedge. Everyone, when I asked them an email, hey, what would you guys like more? 64 degree wedge next or a chipper? Vote uh, A for 64, vote B. Like the simplest plain text email I've ever seen. We'll get like thousands of replies. Um, and it always will be the opposite. I'll think A, 64 degree, and they'll, they'll go B, chipper. <laughs> But the beauty of that is they, they reply back. So they go from the spam or promotion folder to the inbox. To the primary, um, right. So that's one strategy. You know, it, it, it doesn't work if you only send one email ever that says, hey, here's a question. It's got to be part of a whole strategy. Sure. Um, and then we get actual feedback before we launch a product, which is what we want, right? And 
you know, and then it, it just engages and they feel like they built the brand almost because they're voting and actually seeing that product come to life. So then we'll say, Hey guys, you guys voted and 83% voted for the chipper. Thank you so much here. The chipper is going to come out on this date. And so they feel, and they are authentically driving the brand and a part of it. So those simple things we do on social, the group and emails are biggest revenue channel to do questions, you know, it's just so impactful. And I think that, is why we've been successful is we we're not too big and we can actually listen to customers and wow them and just ask them questions that are so simple and actually reply back. And the only people, the only two employees I have in house are customer service. That's amazing. My most I, important guys. <laughs> I, I think it, it speaks volumes. I think to, um, you know, that approach I, I've, I've heard before, like, when you're thinking about this, you know, a competitive market, a lot of folks will look to competitors and that's the wrong approach because typically there's been six months of R and D they're figuring out everything. And by the time you actually go and do what they're doing, you're six months behind mm -hmm. the competitor. But in a lot of ways, like what you, the approach you took here, you're going to the source, the customer knows best. They might've shopped at those competitors already. And there's a reason, you know, if they're with your company now, I think also it's like them having that stake and driving the company forward, the innovation of the product, they feel that connectivity, even a lot of just the benefits of like hitting the primary inbox when you need to communicate to them. Like, I mean, there's so many cascading effects of this, but that mm. to me is like as customer experience uh, at, at the forefront of the business. And it seems like that was a big theme for you um, and really how you built a loyal customer base, honestly. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the whole reason. I mean, it's like, you know, we'll, we're so quick to refund, send a new club, you know, from a customer standpoint, because the word of mouth is really, you know, it's kind of crazy. You know, like when you see someone out in the wild or in a course with a bomb tech club and, you know, it's, it's not like they just bought it. They usually tell everyone they know and have people swing it because mm -hmm. they were wowed somehow in the process or somewhere in that process where there was enough of a story or a, a connection there. And that's like hard to, to, you know, make it tangible on the P and L and things like that. So, I, you know, I kind of am more of a, a touch feel like traction guy versus like all numbers and just the competitors are doing this. Therefore we should do that. I, I just was listening to them and trying to give them what they want and not care, you know, cause yeah. like I can't compete cause we're, we're, we're just so different. So it was like, I think that's how I would approach anything. Uh, especially with physical products and econ brands, like you have to be humble enough to know that the customer is really who rules. And like I, one good example of when it did, it went bad is I was the beer pong champ in 2005, uh, 18 games. Thank you. Uh, at the frat house with uh, my partner, Keith. And, you know, I thought, well, because of that, I'm the customer, right? We should make a product called beer putt. And it was like, I'm like, this is going to kill it. It did pretty well on Facebook. And then, you know, we, we usually do like a micro launch strategy where we ask like we did before, and then we'll launch 500 units mm -hmm. uh, and test the market. And then that will tell us like, okay, based on that velocity, we should go into a bigger 20,000 unit production order. And this was the one time where I was so confident that I was like, nope, let's just make like 2000 units or 5,000. It, it was, it was more than 500, right? And we launched it and it absolutely flopped. It was the worst launch of all time. Uh, I think I had to sell them at cost at the end or, or lost money on it. And it's because my own ego got in the way and I didn't really listen to my customers and did little to find out most of the customers don't even drink beer and they, they're like older. They don't even, they've never played beer pong in their life. So I think there's something to be said of being humble enough to like, yes, you're the founder, you started this, this is your baby, but let the customers take over and not in a micro sense of like, Hey, this one guy really wants this one specific club, but at a more macro level of like, Hey, what do they want? How can we help them? And just, I think you also have to have your team, especially your customer service guys really embrace it. And if you don't have that and willing to invest internally on the team to support that mission, it's going to fall apart, you know? So that's why I invest mo the most on the in-house guys uh, that have those conversations. So really what ends up happening is, 
you know, the, our, our customer doesn't have a conversation once. It's like, this is almost like an ongoing conversation for years. They keep having with the same guys. Like, Oh, I've got the 2.0, 3.0. What do you, and they'll be, they'll talk to the customer service guys by first name. Like, Hey, you know, I've had this club for this long. What do you think about it? You know, and like, they'll have real conversations that I don't think a lot of brands want to have because they look at customer service and the inbox is like, it should just make us money and not be a cost center. You know, sure. like it, the email should make us money. Customer service is a cost center. Whereas we look at it almost as the opposite, like the core of the, the core of the marketing will be successful if this is working. And instead everyone's just pushing in, just hoping. And then they burn their email list and the customers are mad. And then it's, it's hard to have repeat orders when they're pissed. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that's such a, an interesting kind of insight too, is that, um, one thing that you know, I'm hearing a lot as I'm talking to more CX teams and just founders in general is like this sort of debate of like automated uh, kind of communication with customers versus human touch points. And I mean, it seems like you've taken this human approach, having it in house, you know, focusing on some of the unscalable in a lot of ways. Um, and it seems that it's been a big reason why customers feel that relationship too. I spent a lot of time at an SMS platform called Tone. And we did SMS conversations, human, human one-to-one conversations, and that really built relationships. It touched on a lot of what you're saying, that first name basis, reaching out again, and feeling like there's sort of like that friend at the brand that has your back as you're mm-hmm. experiencing this brand. You have questions, all these different things. But um, what I wanted to ask you was, um, was it always easy to do that? To, to really, I mean, it seems like it wasn't. And in some ways, like to be able to really focus on customer conversations, keeping it in-house, like, can you just talk a little bit more about like how you kind of viewed that? And also I would imagine too, like keeping your CS team motivated, you know, I would imagine is probably a big piece of that too. So they can deliver that, you know, stellar service, every single conversation. I, I think at some point, if you can, and you have enough revenue to do that, you should separate yourself out of every part of the business, because if you're too close to it, you're going to be too romantic and too, you know, I would get so upset because I was doing customer service or live chat even back in the day alongside my customer service guys. Like I was literally in the in the weeds in the trenches with them fighting the fight. And because I'm the owner and was so, you know, I, I would get upset and like I would not do as good a job as them because they're although they love the brand, they're slightly more disconnected and could be uh, more logical. But like, hey, no problem. We'll send you a new club. So all I have to do is like find the right guys, which I've had for years now, you know, and I don't, I don't manage them at all. I literally trust them so much. I, they take their own days when they want, they coordinate with the other guys. Um, So they're like literally doing their own thing. And, you know, I gave them the autonomy to do that. And all I, all I taught them early on was like, Hey, you, you're trained to do the unexpected at any cost. So, if someone's expecting to not get a refund for something or they expect like the baseline customer service experience, just do the unexpected, do something that wow them. So instead of being like, Hey, your club's going to be two days late. What is something they wouldn't expect? Like, you know, we'll just ship you another one. If you keep that other one and give it to a buddy, like just do something that wows them. And like, if you can just make even a couple moments like that in the customer journey over time it's like so so much more impactful and then it it softens like when you want to do a promo or you want to launch a new product it just makes everything easier and and it's not i think because i don't micromanage those guys they can do their job well they work remotely um i really don't even talk to them unless they have something they want to talk to me about you know i can see in our help scout platform like what the customer ratings are and one thing we do I know we're going deep on the customer journey, but it is a big part of it is like, you know, I just give them actual things they can do. Like do the unexpected means something, but what does that really mean? So like if someone gives us a bad rating on satisfaction score from Help Scout, you know, we'll actually go in and follow up. Right. And it takes two seconds. It says, hey, you know, I saw you weren't happy with this. And, and it's not like, hey, it's just an automated bullshit. Like, hey, <laughs> what can we do better? <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, I saw that your club you didn't like the loft on that club, you know, uh, may I suggest this club, uh, you know, it's better loft and guess what? It's already on the way, <laughs> you know? So it's just, it's taken a different approach. So for me, I had to uh, detach myself from a lot of stuff to, to run it better. Um, and I think that's really hard. And most people, or at least myself, I got so stuck in the day to day 
that it took me my second child to realize, okay, this is a business. I should operate like the owner, not like someone in the weeds messing stuff up. Cause it got to a point where I was messing with the website, messing with email, messing with different stuff that I need to let the experts do what they do and trust your team and let them run with it versus me micromanage and mess stuff up. And one of the worst years we ever had in the history was like 2000, I don't know, 16 or it was way back. I tested every marketing strategy, tactic, hack, and I, I just was in the weeds messing stuff up. Whereas if I trusted the team, we would have crushed it. So it's, that's probably the hardest part is if you do have success, congrats, but then you need to find people smarter and, and let them really do what they do. You know, and that was, that took me two kids to figure out, you know? Sure. And I, I think, you know, a lot of that too, I imagine was, you know, you laid the groundwork in the early years of the company mm -hmm. and building those, those frameworks and principles and empowering your employees too, to be able to carry that and kind of carry the torch as well. Um, you know, like with those surprise and delight moments and being able to just kind of act, uh, you know, a little bit more autonomy, like that's what I hear as well from a lot of founders, I think that have kind of figured it out is that they realize that, you know, they need to empower their team. They need to get people around them in the room that, you know, like it's okay not to be the smartest person in the room on literally every topic, but if you kind of know a little bit about everything, I think it makes you just that much more of an effective leader to be able to, you know, have that opportunity. And I think um, something you mentioned too, I mean, like I'm, I'm hearing this a lot too, is like investing in the un unscalable with CX is sort of like that differentiator, I think. And like, um, even thinking about, you know, legacy brands or being in a competitive, you know, market, like a lot of times those brands don't feel approachable. And you mm. took the opposite path here of being that approachable brand and building that relationship. I love that a lot. Um, I want to I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and, and ask you. Um, so you've got this claim on the website uh, that says, I personally guarantee that these are the best golf clubs and you'll love them. If for any reason within your first 60 days on the course, you don't love them, you can literally send them back for any reason. Um, sure. You've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but that's definitely a claim I think a lot of brands want to make or stand behind their products, but maybe are scared because of margins or just, you know, maybe mm -hmm. like bad actors. But um, I think you mentioned you saw like less than a 5% return rate on that, which is really impressive. Um, why the bold claim? And really, how did you manage to stay profitable with something like that? Yeah, now it's for Black Friday, it's 180 day. Oh, <laughs> We're wow. doing okay. Well, during the winter, a lot of guys, and this is, again, this is all coming from if I was a customer, because like our number one thing is we were new, we were, direct consumer really didn't exist when we launched. So the number one complaint or uh, barrier to entry or barrier to sale was like, where can I go swing it? That's why I used to always hear like, hey, where can I demo it? And I was like, oh my God, I can't be everywhere. And, and when I was doing demo days, you couldn't, you just couldn't hit enough people. I'd, I'd see, you know, I'd sell three clubs cause there was only five, 10 people that showed up for a demo. So it wasn't scalable. So I said, well, how can we actually give confidence with a product that the first time you hit it becomes used? <laughs> you can't just send it back like close. And I was like, well, we might as just let them try it. Like that's the only way we're going to be able to sell these things online. And be confident that the product's great you know so like early days was really interesting because i i would have and this is when i was talking to every customer i would have guys call me up oh my god this club's fantastic i outdrove my buddies i hit it so straight i'm loving it two weeks later this is like when the brand was brand new they're like hey man just send it back <laughs> i'd be like what do you mean dude they're like well you know it's just not a brand that everyone knows and you know they my buddies were giving me crap because it wasn't I was like, oh, my God. So it's definitely an uphill battle. Um, but that for us, I just had enough confidence in the product and our price points competitive enough that, you know, we could do it. And the return rate, luckily, has always been really low. And I think it's because the product's good. We ship fast and we take care of customers. So I think we probably have a lot less returns than a normal. We normally would if we didn't do all the post-purchase things to wow them. So like we do like thank you voicemails. We do handwritten thank you cards. Then we have the Facebook group and then we do a thank you video. So it's like four, four points that indoctrinate them. And it's, it's so they can connect and it's like, we want them to do it and we really do thank them. And I think that's maybe a missing part of like, if I started this brand to make money, you may not really care, but I was just a golfer starting a golf brand. So guess what? I really cared. So like, I really wanted to thank them. And I think maybe a lot of times if it's money driven and you're just a smart entrepreneur and you see e-commerce as a, a revenue op, 
you know, or, or make income, maybe you do that. But like, for me, I was like, I just want to thank these guys, you know? So like I did a lot of stuff and, and the guys now will still do the thank you videos um, with Bongiorno, which is really cool. And it's like, we can't send everyone one, but if we spend an hour a day or half hour of just sending these videos, it's just extra effort, you know? And it's just like those little, little pieces of extra effort will probably make that experience of the product like let's say he hits it the same without that versus those things he may not return it because he was just wowed and loves the brand and now thinks differently when he swings it whereas if he just totally. bought it on online had no relationship you know maybe that would change because golf is so mental too which is always the hardest part because i know the product can stand up and and it's all awesome products but it's so mental so i think doing these things and just truly thanking them makes it almost more than just the product which is like and the day it's it's i wouldn't say they're commodities but it makes us unique because we're just putting in a little more effort and it's really it's not that hard to put in the effort i think you just have to have a founder or someone at the core that really does thank them and if they if they don't maybe they shouldn't be in business that's a great mindset to have and to call out i think as well as like you know it, you got to really think about what's core to your business strategy and if customers really are at the center of that like a lot of brands say they're customer centric but mm-hmm. i mean if you can't really stand behind a product you can't connect with your customers i love that you know video being able to send that to a customer um I'm a, quick too. it's just a little effort quick. it's like just got to do it though but a lot of people just don't want to do it and I think that that goes a long way in, in building that, you know, even like as they're testing out the product, they're like, man, like this company's really going the extra mile to connect with me make sure I have that experience. Um, I'm going to be less likely to return that product, take advantage of that. You know, I, it really just gives me that peace of mind. I think about um, I'm an avid runner and I shop with Roadrunner Sports all the time and they, they have this. 90 day, no, no, no bullshit money back guarantee, basically. And and like, I could wear the shoes for 89 and a half days, return on the 90th day and get my money back. I've never done it um, because I just love their customer service and and they really go the extra mile for me, no pun intended to to be able to do that. But (laughs) I think um, that is a great example. I think of like how I think you've been so successful at getting customers to come back and and have a successfully scalable business with it. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you kind of, um, to, to shift gears a little bit forward now, I think, too, is like, I'm sure, um, you know, you're, you're at a price point, you know, kind of in that, like, um, you know, I, I would say most most e-com brands maybe are at a little bit lower of a price point, but some some brands that are, are like maybe in the 100 200 $300 range where someone's not going to be purchasing this product every day. Um, how, did, how do you think about, I mean, I think you've mentioned a lot of great strategies already, but how do you think about like, you know, folks are going to be buying a bomb tech, you know, club every day. How are you thinking about like getting them to come back um, or, or generally just be a loyal customer for an extended period of time? That is tough. You know, I mean, it, it's we don't I mean, I always was jealous of these like consumables, like the makeups and whatever, whatever the monthly, you know, uh, boxes that are delivered. I'm like, man, that must be easy. <laughs> Because selling a hard goods tough, you know, because it's a high price point. So there's a lot of research usually. And we don't do a ton of launches. I mean, our last launch we did, it was like three years between models, you know. And it and for me, my whole philosophy is like, hey, we, we're not going to launch a new product unless it's actually better, um, which makes it also harder because we, we're not just churning out new products just to make more money. Sure. Um so, it, you know, it's it's one of those things where I think if we earn their trust with one product, like the wedges or the driver, you know, over time, they'll go play it. They'll be on the course. They'll talk to their buddies and they'll like they'll decide, OK, this is the club for me. And then they'll talk to a customer service. They'll come back or they'll see, you know, something. Then maybe they'll get the irons and then maybe they'll get. So the, once they build out the full bag, because now we've got full sets, you know, that customer can be worth just with one set over like a thousand dollars. And then if we launch a new version every couple of years, you know, maybe they upgrade and get the the newest and latest and greatest, which our last launch was our biggest launch ever. We did uh, 238,000 in 24 hours, which was good for us. Um, I was hoping it was more, but, you know, it, it, it was great. I can't be greedy. Um, so it, it can be tough, but I think it's just like we do the core fundamentals well over a sustained period of time therefore we've earned the right to sell them other product when they're ready you know but we can't twist their arm and say hey you just bought a driver 
buy a backup one. <laughs> you know, it's just, it doesn't work yeah. like that. And um, for whatever reason, I think with the, all of the sales cycles long, we have enough product SKUs and different products to fill out a bag that it, our repeat order rates, you know, depends on the year, but it's, you know, it's like high twenties. You know, I think it's, it's had years where it's higher, where we launched different colors and, you know, different finishes and different stuff. Um, but yeah, we just got to keep wowing them on a day-to-day -day consistent basis. So when they are ready to add that next set or whatever, you know, we've earned the right. And I think that's the only way to look at it. So we're, a lot of this stuff is like high level strategy of how we think of it. And then just fundamental things you want to do consistently, you know? Totally. I think, um, you know, that's the right approach. I love it. You say, you know, earn the right to, to be able to resell to them. And I think a lot of this that you've mentioned, like even the way that you just think about retention in general, like it's sometimes maybe hard to put on a PL in a really linear fashion. How this all comes together. It's the word of mouth. It's the different touch points, the videos that they're getting, the communications from CS, like all these different things play in to that entire experience. And like, I think what really creates loyalty is um, sometimes investing in the unscalable things too. Um, I'm curious, um, you know, I, I think like when you talk to like CMOs or like founders of like D2C companies, they typically fall in like one of two camps, I think is like looking at customers as like, there's a break even point or like a profit profitability number that they're looking at versus like the physical relationship that they have with the customer. And like, I know that can really make or break your ad spend, how you think about acquiring customers and really scaling a business. Um, was that a challenge for you at all? Or like, were you always sort of like in this long-term view that like you knew if you did those things right, that the customer would always just, you know, come back and, and that would fall in place naturally? No, we didn't always know. I mean, we, you know, luckily, so when you manufacture your own product, you know, it, it is a cash flow beast. You know, it takes a lot of capital to run, you know, a high seven figure econ brand when you manufacture your own stuff and the lead times are long. So to say it's easy and doesn't take a lot of cash is, is difficult, but you know, we've been fortunate that we've been very profitable on day one ads, you know, since 2000, whenever we ran that first ad, even when I was doing it and sucked at it, you know, we were still profitable on first sale. You know uh, we've had years where we're more profitable than others on sales. Uh, but you know, COVID has been good to golf and e-commerce, you know, so it is, I think I, started a golf brand when it was a bad idea to start a golf brand <laughs> and then timing became good. So I think a lot of this was like, we didn't follow any trends because once you try to follow a trend, it's too late. Right. And, you know, we kind of were, I was definitely lucky on timing too, because I started when it really didn't exist. I started like, I don't even, I think Facebook ads probably existed. I didn't know about them, but I started early days, Facebook when, you know, you could run the world's worst ad and, and spend a dollar and get five back. <laughs> It was, I, that was those glory days. I wish you had more product, but I didn't have the cash to do it. Um, so yeah, we've always tried to, I mean, I, I'm such a conservative founder and, you know, it took me four years and a lot of capital working capital loans to get to a point where I was debt free. And that was a really free in moment. And that was one of the reasons I sold it too, because to keep doing the volumes we were doing, you know, we're doing POs that were huge. And I, I just would, I personally would have had to take on probably some debt or at least run real thin. And I was like, I've been doing this for 10 years. I just wanted to do this. I love it. I don't want to do it if it causes me stress, you know? Exactly. So, so a little bit of it was, it was definitely right timing, but I didn't really, and this is all me being naive. It was like kind of beautiful that I didn't know how much capital you would need. Or I would have probably never started. I just, when I started selling product, I go, where's the money? <laughs> you know, I was like, shit, we got to go make more product. Where's all the money? Um, and luckily, you know, my parents gave me 10 grand, which I paid back. And then I did like 300 grand of PayPal loans back in the day. And, you know, once I got debt free, I was like, wow, this feels good. And now I'm in a position where I totally cashed out, but I'm still on salary and doing what I love. And so it's, for me, it's the best case scenario. I don't know if I answered your question at all, but, but yeah, we were profitable and we, we were in, we haven't been in a spot yet. And I hope we don't get there with ad costs going up where we've said, okay, we have to lose, lose money on the first sale and make it on the second. We've always been profitable and run a really high return on ad spend. Um, I think cause the offer is good, the brand and, and the word of mouth and it's it just also time. So and anything in life is, I wouldn't say, I don't know what percent time, but time is a big piece of, of the success. 
hundred percent. I think, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's always, I think, uh, you know, a, a balancing scale of like, sometimes you have a brand that just can't be profitable in the first sale because of, you know, you sell too tight of margins or such a low AOV. I think there's a lot of factors that go into that, but I think what you mentioned too, like the risk reward of having a mix of like debt versus just getting out at the right time, I think is something that a lot of founders like struggle to figure out is like, um, you know, taking on an aggressive, you know, debt structure can be really, really beneficial if you have all those things in place. But like at the same time, like it could be a wrong time to actually do that. And I think right now, like, especially, you know, uncertainty around, you know, where this economy is headed. Like, I think there's some factors there. I think a lot of founders are kind of trying to figure out right now, to be honest. Um, but as we kind of wrap up, I, I feel like I, I've, I've learned a lot just, I think, in kind of, I think how you've thought about this retention kind of network with BombTech. But do you think that, customer retention is easier today with the advent of all these different technologies or do you think it actually is more difficult today to acquire customer or not sorry acquire but retain customers um, than it might have been in years past i think people are more distracted now for sure um so maybe some of the efforts we make today are, are less impactful because they just have so much stuff you know, there's so many apps, so many things on their phone. Because um, some of the stuff early days were new and novel. And although they were authentic, seemed potentially have more impact. So I think it's just a long term. Can you do any of the things that you really believe in for a sustained period of time? You know, is, re is really the key. So, I mean, I hate to always like say today, you know, because any brand could start doing this or start doing that. But it's like. You may not be able to do it because over the last three years, you 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 were caring. So it's it, it's more of like, I, I don't, you know, tools and apps are funny because I'm like the anti-app tool guy. You sure. need them to get the job done. And I think it's just like, how authentic is the message? And, and one thing maybe to talk about too is like, I have also accidentally attached myself to the brand early days. And that was one thing too. It made it more personal, you know, and just like, and that was because I just wanted to do that and had to do it because I was only one. <laughs> so it's like a lot of these things were accidental. And it's like, yeah, the technology may be easier to do a post-purchase thank you or whatever or text or email. Uh, but just because more people can do it, they're probably still using it the wrong way and don't care. So if you if you do care, really, then, yeah, you'll be successful either way. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good way to answer it. But, yeah, I think e-commerce, if I started today, would I don't know if it'd be harder. I think the cost to advertise were harder, but I wasn't even using ads when I started. So I think I'm glad I started when I did. Um, and it may be hard to start now and cut through the noise. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I think it's, I think it's timing and just doing what you like at the, at the end of the day, it's like, do what you like and it will never feel like work. And then you can do the shit that's not scalable and you actually care about. But if you only do it for money, I, I think you'll never win and you'll never regardless of how good the tools are and the apps it's just not gonna it's not gonna work totally i think that that's an important principle to always carry through it doesn't matter when you start a brand like you need to be in it for the right reasons um yeah. you know i think like there are you know exceptions to the rule where it was purely financial and it all worked out but like a lot of times i think those intentions can fizzle out pretty quickly or you kind of lose the passion i think that yeah they probably i mean I, I i may have been too naive and should have had more uh, a business plan put together. I think it's just more of like, will you stick with it if it if it becomes hard? And I think every business has many hard moments and maybe more hard moments than easy. So therefore, you may just not be as willing to to keep with it for the ten years. You may be done in a year or six months because you know you really just weren't in it. You know that's all. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's a, a great kind of way to I think summarize kind of like this discussion here. And, and as we kind of wrap up to, um, I know you're up to more things than bomb tech. Now you mentioned, you know, some other ventures there. What are you up to now besides, uh, you know, your kind of day job with bomb tech? Yeah. The kids and wife are sick of me cause I'm home all the time. <laughs> um, so no, I mean, so I'm still doing, uh, running bomb tech and, you know, I do have definitely more mental free time. So, you know, I'm helping my partner, Chris, who's actually my first employee at bomb tech. Um, with our agency, we've got an email agency, Ecom e Growers, we're a Clavio agency, which has been a really interesting business. We've been running, I mean, this is it's fairly old now, 2017 till now. So we just help, you know, Ecom brands with their um, 
email or econ bridge their email Morgan Clavio and SMS, which has been really fun. And then recently, I don't know why I did this. This is just one of these things where I've never done it and I'm naive and I want to try it. I started my own blog, sullytyler.com. And I really have never had a pure content site. Um, and I'm trying just to see if I can, this is like old school, but make SEO optimized content and get traffic and, and, you know, monetize in that way. And it's, I think I'm doing it because it's something I've never done and it's, I like to learn stuff and I go through these moments in time where I'm like, I just got to work on something new. And it's like, I think that was one of the reasons I sold BombTech too. It's like, I had been doing it for so long. I have the right people in the right place. And this is something new. So it's sullytyler.com is my blog. And, you know, just having fun with it. I've got a hundred blog posts written. I didn't write them all myself, but some, you know, really pillar posts about like how I did that launch of 240K in a day. You know, just trying to document and have fun with it and uh, see if we can make some money in a different different channel. I'm no TikTok guy, so I know what I'm good <laughs> at not. You know, I'm not a, although TikTok's big for bomb tech, I'm not like the TikTok expert or things like that. Um, but yeah, no, I'm just doing that and ski season's coming up and uh, doing podcasts, living the dream. I love it, dude. I love it. Well, uh, my nervous is definitely, um, you know, I think, oh, how many episodes of podcasts have you been on now? It's been, it's been well over 100. Is, are you keeping it's tabs on? Cra- it's something crazy, dude. I, I don't know. It just started and then I like really enjoyed them. It's like, and, and this is like one of those things where I can't outsource it and I enjoy it. So I was like, I just want to do more of this. And, and usually if I do it well, it has an impact on the businesses in general. So like there's something to be said about figuring out what you can outsource and going in on more of that. And I thought about starting a podcast and I just, I'm not organized enough to do it consistently on that side, but I can always guess, guess do it, guess podcast. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been fun and I appreciate you having me and hopefully, um, hopefully some value for the, for the listeners. I know it's probably not as tactical and, you know, uh, deep in the weeds, but man, I, once I got out of the weeds of the, the really small tactics and just looked at a higher level strategy, it just like, it became much easier, you know, it just like, cause you can get so stuck. And I think cause it's a e-commerce is tech based, you know, it's like, you get so stuck in these apps and things that are tools and they're great, but you got to use them the right ways, you know? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's, I think the conceptual stuff that we talked about here is really the principles I, that are so foundational to building a successful e-commerce brand. And it doesn't matter when you start. I think these things still apply today here in 2022 and they will in the future as well. Um, and it's a great story, man. I really appreciate you sharing it with us and just kind of getting to learn a little bit more about how you see the world. Um, I'm really excited, you know, to see where BombTech continues to grow. Um, and I, I think also just, you know, for our, our listeners to go pull away some of those kind of best practices that you kind of use as you scale the business. And one final thought, too, I just wanted to add to the podcast thing is I, I have this belief that I think that founders, you know, should be doing more of this documenting their journey, sharing it with others. I think it's great for us to learn from in the community, but also like it's a lot of great benefits. I think that we're seeing a lot of these next generation of founders getting from it. It's like the opportunity to attract new talent or funding or just sharing their journey and being able to acquire new customers. Like all these different things can just happen from opening up and sharing. And I super appreciate you kind of sharing the journey with us. Um, it's, it's been super insightful. Thanks for having me.